Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. If you were with us last week, you know we began our study here in the fifth uh, chapter of the book of Ephesians, coming off of the fact that we have been through three chapters talking about the theology or the doctrine of what it means to be saved and who Christ is and what God's done for us through Christ. We moved into the fourth chapter where we started applying those things to our life, and then we stepped into the fifth chapter this year with a theme, with a theme, if you remember, he starts off saying, therefore, based on all those things he said before, based on those things that we should have applied uh, out of the fourth chapter, based on the fact that he ends that fourth chapter saying, forgive one another, even as Christ has forgave you. He says, therefore, based on all those things, we are to be followers or imitators of God. Last week, we talked about the fact that we were to be imitators. And how were we to be imitators? The very first point that we came across was the fact that there was this request to walk in love that Paul was making. Paul made this request that we walk in love. We talked about what that meant to be a follower of God, to actually be more than just one who walks behind and heads in the general direction. We talked about, matter of fact, if you remember our chicken walk example last week, it wasn't just good enough to move from one side of the room to the other, as the kids demonstrated, but to imitate, you must do it in the same manner, which he told us as followers, as imitators, we are to do exactly what God does. So there was this request to walk in love. Today, let's talk about the response to walking in love. How? What is the response to walking in love? We said, therefore, be imitators of God. And he says this, as dear children, how do we to approach the following of God? How are we supposed to get in behind God and walk? I think about the example of the man who goes out to check on his, his animals when it had snowed and his son wanted to go along with him. And as he walked through this uh, knee-deep snow, he was making the holes in the snow. And when he looked back, his son, to make it easy on himself, was doing everything possible to step in the exact same tracks that his dad had done. If you've got kids, you've seen that. You've gone somewhere with your kids and you've walked maybe across a stream or through the woods and they do everything they can to stretch their legs far enough to step in the exact same places that you have stepped. I think about wartime when they would approach a minefield and they take volunteers. You know how they do it in the army. They lined them all up and they said, everybody who is willing to, whoever's willing to go first through the minefield, step forward. What happened? Everybody except one dumb guy took one step back. And one dumb guy was standing out there all by himself going, I didn't volunteer for anything. And he got to be the first one through. And he would walk through the minefield. What did the ones do behind him? Did they go, he made it through. That can't be the right path. We're going to use the one over here. No. He made it all the way through. And you can bet as they went through the minefield, they didn't look up to see what was ahead of them. They looked down to find his shoe prints. Because they realized to step on the same shoe prints meant they weren't going to step on anything that had blown up. Why? They'd just seen a guy do it. And see, to be an imitator of God is not to set a new path through the world. To be an imitator of God is to follow the path that God has laid before us. What is the path that God has laid before us? It has a name. The name is Jesus. You see, Jesus left the portals of heaven and came to earth to live as a man for one reason. So that you'd know where to walk. He came to walk on this earth so that when you make your next step, you should look for the sandal print of the Savior. You see, every step we take has been laid out before us by Jesus. 
Jesus was the living example of what it meant to meant to be a child of God. So to be an imitator of God means that we must place our feet where Jesus placed his. I think about the fact that he says we're to be an imitator as dear children. Yes, children walk in the footsteps of their parents, their fathers, or their mothers as they go through life. But also think about what a child does when it comes to deciding what they're going to do later in life. Most children, when asked when they're young, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do they say? They, if it's a boy, they look at what their dad does. They may say, I want to be a, a, a firefighter or a policeman. They may look at their mom and say, I want to be a nurse or I want to be a doctor or, or I want to be a good mother. They're basing it on this mother, this father, this one who so loves them that they've taken care of them. They've gone out of their way to make sure that the child is nurtured and loved and feels accepted. And that child in response wants to be just like dad or just like mom. See, when Paul tells us we are to be imitators of God as dear children, he's telling us not to just look for the footprints out of obedience, but to look for the footprints out of love. You see, many people take the necessary steps. They call it religion. They do the things they're supposed to do because somebody's made a list. They said, you must do this. You must be here on Sunday. You must participate in communion. You should walk an aisle. You should be baptized. You should be at Sunday school. You should read your Bible every day. They imitate God through the things, but they don't do it because they're in love with God. And there's a world of difference. You know what the world of difference is? Somebody's going to be spit out of God's mouth. Because just to go through the motions doesn't mean you're in love with God. It means you're good at following a box and checking it off. And see, what he's saying here is don't just be an imitator, but be an imitator out of love because of what God has done for us. He's saying everything that we do should reflect God's love both in why and how we do it and to those we do it to. God's love should surround each and everything we do from the decisions we make to the person that we make the decision that it also affects. See, the overarching characteristics of our life should be to show God's love to a lost and dying world. When we open our eyes in the morning, we should so love God that we want to hear what he's doing, see where he's going, and fall in right behind him and do those things that he is doing. So he says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. But what kind of love does he mean in verse 2 when he says, walk? in love see because he brings it up he says if you're a true imitator of god because you love him as a dear child you're going to walk in love well what kind of love are we to walk in thankfully paul doesn't leave us to guess he tells us he says as christ has loved us and how has christ loved us you ever stopped and thought about how christ has loved you fortunately again for those who of us who are a little slow Paul tells us, he says, Christ, just as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. See, Christ has given himself for us. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture of Christ being in the glory, the 
heavenly glory of his father and being called upon to place flesh on himself and come to this world to love us. Can you see the picture? See, the place that we so desire to be is the place that Christ willingly stepped out of to come be loved to us. He came from the very presence of the Almighty God to love us. And what Paul would say it is, we're to walk in love as Christ loved us and has given himself for us. Given himself, his life, as the Bible says, was not taken from him. He was not forced by God to come to this earth. He was not forced to crawl upon a cross. He did not crawl upon a cross and be murdered. He willingly, when God looked around heaven to find the spotless lamb to send, I believe Jesus raised his hand and said, here I am, send me. I believe when he came to this earth and God laid the burden of all of our sin upon his body, when he was there in the garden and he prayed, if there's any way possible, Father, let this cup pass from me, you do realize he was not talking about death. There was not a nail in the world, a cross in the world that was going to scare our Jesus. What Jesus was saying is this cup, Father, this cup that I desire to pass from me if there's any way possible is the fact that he was about to receive all of your sin and mine on his precious body. How do we know that? Because it says that God turned his back on him for the world went dark. He didn't turn his back on him because he couldn't see him suffer. That didn't bother God at all. He turned his back on him because he looked like us in our sin. You see, Jesus so loved us that he gave himself. As a matter of fact, as he hung upon the cross and they were doing all the things they had done to everyone else to kill them, Jesus was living through it. He didn't die until he said, it is finished. They could have beat him all day and could have stabbed him with all the spears they wanted to and they'd have never killed him until he gave up his body for us. Until he poured out his blood for us, until he had done that thing which God desired to be done for you and I, he was not going to die. But when it was complete, he said, it's done. It's finished. The cup of wrath that he so didn't want to drink, he picked up from the table and slammed it upside down and said, God, it's done. You see, he took all the sin of us upon himself and gave himself willingly for us. And how did he do that? He did it in a manner that relates back to the Old Testament, it says here. He says, we're to walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. You see in the Old Testament, they would take the clean animals and they would split them in half and place them on the altar and walk between them for certain sacrifices. They would, uh, they would drain the blood from animals and use them at certain times. They would, they would have these ceremonies that revolved around using the best of the flock to make an offering to God. But there was a problem with that. You see, on the Day of Atonement, they did it every year. On the Day of Atonement, for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. Yet guess what had to happen the next year? The exact same thing. Because there was no sacrifice sufficient. Yet Christ, when he took our sin upon his body and crawled upon the cross and he said, it is finished. It was the last offering that ever had to be given for our sins. 
It was an offering above all offerings. See, he offered himself on our behalf. He did what we could not do. He paid the debt for our sin that we could not pay. See, he sacrificed himself completely as an offering to pay our debt and a sacrifice for our sins. He was the spotless lamb. He was the atonement for all of our sins. You see, it tells us in Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8, exactly how this takes place. I'm going to fly through a few passages for you, so flip or write the notes down. But it says in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for our sins. You see, while we were yet sinners, while we were not desiring, while we were not looking to have a relationship with God, Christ took our sin upon his body and died upon the cross that that sin would be forgiven. One sacrifice for all. He took away our sin by being that offering in our place. In John 15, 13, it says this. Here's how much love God had for us. It says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his own life for his friends. He goes on in verse 14 to say, you are my friends. If you do whatever I command you. You see, he loved us before we were lovable. He loved us to the point of death. And he did it by laying down his own life. In 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see, as John, the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he penned his thoughts about who this Jesus was, the thought that came to his mind was how he knew what love was. He says, how do I know? How do you know? How how do we know what love really is? He says, because he laid down his life for us, willingly laid down his life for us. That verse so parallels The verse in John's gospel, the verse that we all learn before we probably could even say anything else intelligent from the Bible. We all learn John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The love of God. But why this love? Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He goes on to say in verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. But guess what? He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. You see, Christ came. Christ came and showed us exactly what love is. How did he do it? He crawled upon a cross and died for you. That's something I believe we tend to forget at times. We tend to let the gravity of what Christ did slip from our minds. For you see, Christ did for us the thing that we could not do. And he did it willingly. He did it willingly. And he did it 
before you ever asked for it. He did it before you ever desired. And he did it completely. Never does it have to be done again. And what is God's response to Christ's offering and sacrifice? Back in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, And walk in love as Christ also have loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. There's not many of us that can reflect on what it means to be a sweet-smelling aroma at a sacrifice. I doubt any of us think of the burnt offering and think of how good it would smell to have a bull burning on a stack of wood. I doubt many of us would think how wonderful the church would smell as the temple would in the old days when on the Day of Atonement there would be thousands if not millions of animals slain on the altar. I doubt we would think if we were to open up our doors and decide that we were going to do sacrifices and you were going to bring your animals and we were going to slay them right here on the table, I doubt any of us would think that this place would smell very good by the end of the day. (laughs) Yet, what did Paul say? That Christ crawling upon a cross and dying for us was a sweet-smelling aroma. Have you ever thought of that hill of Golgotha, the skull, the cross at Calvary? Have you ever thought that those gathered around would have looked and said, wow, doesn't this smell good? Yeah, that's what God did. See, when God looked down from heaven at his son bleeding out on a cross, the blood pouring from his body and running across the ground, when he looked down, he said, that smells good i got to be honest with you. When I read that, I kind of think God's a little weird. Does that seem strange to anybody other than me? When I look at that, I go, what is this God that would think the death of his only son smelled good? Have you ever been in a place where a person has died? Some of you have run rescue. You know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a certain smell. When you go into a place that a person has passed away, that if you ever smell it, you'll never forget it. Can you believe that God would look on his only begotten son and said, that smells good to me? That's exactly what he said. He said it was a sweet smell and aroma, said it was pleasing to God. As a matter of fact, back in Isaiah it's Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. It says this, verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It says in verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God was happy. God was joyful. God was pleased to bruise Jesus. I think the term bruise is way too weak. He was, bruised to, he was pleased to beat him. He was pleased to ridicule him. He was pleased to have nails driven through his hands and his feet. He was pleased to have a crown of thorns shoved down his head so that the thorns dug into his scalp and he bled profusely from those wounds. He was pleased to have a spear run into his side. 
He was pleased to have him hang in agony on a cross, suffocating. The Bible says God was pleased. See, it pleased God to give his son for us. It pleased God to sacrifice his son on our behalf. It pleased God to punish his son for our sin. It pleased God to kill his son to pay the debt of our sin. The gravity of your salvation is immense. The weight of what took place that you might have a right relationship with the Almighty God is large. See, it says that God so loved the world that he was pleased to be the son. God so loved the people at Morris Creek Baptist Church that he was pleased to shove a crown of thorns upon his head. God so loved you that he was pleased to drive nails through his hands and his feet on a cross. God so loved me that he was willing to run a spear through his side. How much does God love you? He loves you to death. To death of his only begotten son. It's amazing to me to think that God loved me when I was unlovable so much that it pleased him. It pleased him to see his son die for me. See, what is this salvation? What what all took place that that made a difference for us. You see, there was, there was three things that Christ did for us. See, Jesus' life, first and foremost, displayed the righteousness of God. He gave us the example, the feet print, that we are to step in so that we can walk in the love that Christ had for us. But Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God. He laid down the footprints And then satisfied the wrath of God. Because short of the death of Jesus, who was going to be beaten and bruised and killed for my sins? Short of what Christ did, who was going to do it? It was going to be me. Not to be forgiven, but to be punished by the wrath of God for all of eternity because of those sins. Jesus' life showed us the righteousness of God. Jesus' death showed us that the wrath of God had been taken care of. It satisfied that wrath. But thank God that's not where it ended. For you see, Jesus' resurrection demonstrated the power of God. See, had Christ been left upon the cross, there would be no living Savior. Had Christ been left upon the cross, there would be no hope for a future. But this Christ that was dead, physically dead, they observed it. They took him off of the cross and placed him in a tomb. They found three days later the power of God had shown up. And Christ had walked from that tomb just as he said. Why? Because the grave clothes were folded and placed to the side and the tomb was found to be empty. The only thing left in that burial place of Jesus was what they had humanly wrapped him in. To give him some dignity at his burial. Jesus had left. And that's the power of God. What is the proof that God is pleased with the son? The resurrection. 
You see, the death upon the cross is what washed us white as snow. The resurrection is proof that God was satisfied with what Christ had done and there was going to be a future. It was only because of the resurrection that Christ could stand and say, I'm coming back. Had there been no resurrection, there would be no return. But see, he loved us through his death to forgive us of our sins. And God loved him through his life to say that I want to be with you forever. See, the power of God is shown in the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was a stamp of approval on his sacrifice for our sins. And the stamp of satisfaction that there would be a future with him forever. How are we to walk this walk of love? Because you have to admit, to look at what Christ did for us, those footsteps are pretty far apart. It's like when you have a seven-foot-tall father and a three-foot-tall son trying to make sure each of his feet land in the same snow push down snow prints all the way out to the barn, that little three-foot-tall son has quite the task to land his feet in the same footsteps of that father. Even as I tell you what Christ did for us this morning in the walk of love that he showed before us, I realize the magnitude of that walk. Let me break some news to you. God never promised the walk would be easy. God never promised you could even do it. He never said, Roger, there's where Jesus walked. You follow him. He said, no, I'm going to send someone that's going to be your helpmate, your helper. who's going to be your guide. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwelling in me is the only ability I have to follow the footsteps of this man, this God man, Jesus. You see, because his feet stretch way too far for my short legs to reach. His steps are way too true for me to be able to follow. He never said I could do it on my own. He said I could only do it through the power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And that power shows up in our lives in the Holy Spirit. You see, how exactly did Jesus love us? How exactly did he set forth that path? The obvious answer is to say by giving his life for us. But why did he give his life for us? Because he loved us and for our forgiveness. See, we walk in Christ's love by doing what he did. And what exactly did Christ do for us? He forgave us when we didn't deserve it. I look around the church especially. The world for sure. But the church especially. How many people would be honest this morning with God and say, you know what? There's somebody I need to forgive. If I truly am going to put my feet in the same steps as Jesus, there's going to have to be some forgiveness in my life. You see, and to walk in love, we must do what Christ did and be willing to lay down that selfish life of ours and offer forgiveness, even if it hasn't been asked for. Because remember, Christ died while we were yet sinners, not asking for forgiveness. He offered it. See, the greatest love God has shown towards us is the forgiveness of our sins. We will love exactly to the same degree with which we've been loved. We will forgive with the same forgiveness with which we have been forgiven. 
small amount of love means you think you've only been loved a little bit. Small amount of forgiveness, the easy places, means you believe you've only been forgiven a small degree. I think of a story in the Bible, and we'll end with this, Luke 7. Very quickly in Luke 7, I think it brings this point home of what it means to walk in love, what it means to be just like Jesus. Luke chapter 7 verse 36 says this, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And this was one of those pious, righteous, religious leaders, one of those that had all the information, should have had the footsteps pretty well laid out, should have known exactly where the path was. It was this Pharisee, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and, and he sat down to eat. So Jesus, he shows up at this Pharisee's house. He pulls up a seat to the table. Remember in that day and time, they reclined with their head towards the table and their feet out behind them. And he was reclining at the table, maybe straight across from this Pharisee because Jesus was a special guest. Can you see the picture? There was a multitude of them probably. There was a whole host of them, maybe all the disciples. Everyone was gathered around this table and they were eating. And it says in verse 37, And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... Let's get the English right there. It says a woman in the city who was a prostitute. A woman in the city who was a a woman of the night. A, A woman in the city who everyone knew who and what she was. It says when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Sermon for another time. The alabaster flask would have meant it was very expensive. And remember what she did for a living? How do you think she bought it? I find it interesting. She shows up at the house with this very expensive oil that she had gained access to through the prostitution that she had done. And she shows up here at this house. It says in verse 38, And she stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears. And wipe them with the hair of her head. So you see this picture. Jesus is reclined at the table. He's probably sitting straight across from the Pharisee. He's got other religious leaders there. And quietly a woman slips in the door and she stands behind him. And the tears are so running from her eyes that she's able to wash his feet with them. Have you ever cried that hard? Have you ever cried so much you could wash somebody's feet? This woman was pretty upset. And it says that she washed his feet with her tears. And she dried them with the hair on her head. She must have done a good job because it goes on to say, and she kissed his feet. Kissing in that day of time was different than what we use it for today. Almost all the greetings from those who loved each other at that time was greeted with a kiss on the cheek. It was a sign of respect and love. Her kissing his feet was a sign of love. It says then that she anointed him with the oil. She had washed, she had dried, she had kissed, and now she anointed his feet. Notice this Sunday morning churchgoer. The guy who was in the house every day that the door was open at the church, he was there. The guy who taught a Sunday school class, never missed Sunday school, was here for every fellowship, attended every Sunday school class. Here he is in verse 39. He jumps right out at us. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, He spoke to himself. See, that's that deacon 
That's that Sunday school teacher. That's that person who's been in a church forever. They're a founding member. Their mom and dad built the place. That's who that is sitting over on the side. And when the guy comes in the back door in blue jeans and a torn up t-shirt covered in tattoos, he says inside of himself, what's he doing here? That's who that is. That's the guy who never misses a Sunday, has a string of perfect attendance in Sunday school, that when he sees somebody that he doesn't think should be here, inside of himself he goes, what are they doing here? Notice it was never spoken out loud. He just says to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He said to himself, If that woman had touched me, I'd have had her toted out here and bounced out in the street. Because I'm better than that. This guy says he's a prophet? He didn't say a word to her. Maybe I should have them both thrown out. That's what he's thinking in his head. Story doesn't end there, thank goodness. It moves down to verse 40. It says that Jesus answered him. Now, if you're thinking something within you this morning and you haven't said it out loud, and I were just to walk up and give you an answer to it, would that get your attention? I think so. Jesus says this to him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And I can see old Simon raise up on his elbow and say, so say it. And Jesus says this, a master of stories. He says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50 denarii. It was about a day's work. So one owed 500 days' work, uh, the other one owed about 50 days' work. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both says this debtor said you are both free to go you owe me five you're free you owe me 50 you're free you owe me nothing jesus pins him to the wall with this he says tell me therefore which of them will love him more which of them will love the debtor who forgave them more the pharisee said i suppose the one he forgives more and jesus says You've rightly judged. He said, the one who was forgiven more will love more. And Jesus said, you are right. Look at what he does. He turns to the woman. He looks at her. He looks back at Simon. I bet he gives a pause. And he says, do you see this woman? He says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Remember the custom of the day? To wash the dirt from the feet was a sign of respect and acceptance to a person who visited. He says, I showed up. You didn't wash my feet. But she, she washed my feet with her tears. Had she wiped them with the hair of her head. He says, you gave me no kiss. Sign of respect and love. Says, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time that I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil which was the custom of the day because of the dryness, again, out of respect and love. says, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, (laughs) imagine he points and says, her sins, (laughs) which are many, which are abundant, which are of great magnitude, her sins, which are so vile, we won't even name them, her sins, They're forgiven. He says, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. 
says that he turned to her and said, Your sins are forgiven. In order to walk as Jesus walked, we must first and foremost recognize the magnitude of our forgiveness. For I am that woman. I am that woman. That should not even have been allowed at the foot of the cross. I am that woman whose sins were abundant. I am that woman who deserved nothing from God. Yet because he first loved me when I was yet a sinner, I can't help but wash his feet with my tears and dry his feet with the hair of my head and to kiss his feet continuously because of the magnitude of that which he has forgiven me for. That's first and foremost. Yet what must I do then if that is true in my life? That there has been a magnitude of forgiveness? What must I then do? Give a magnitude of forgiveness. You see, the Christian walk is not about you securing a ticket to a place called heaven. The Christian walk is about you showing Jesus to a lost and dying world. What greater way to show Christ than to say, He has so forgiven me, I forgive you. You owe me nothing. Your debt has been excused. So this morning I ask you this, church. Do you first and foremost understand the gravity, the magnitude of the forgiveness that's been shown to you by God through His Son, Jesus Christ? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there has been a time in your life that you have nailed at the feet of a blessed Savior so understanding what He has forgiven you for that your tears have washed His feet and you have grabbed hold of Him? And you don't want to stop loving him, kissing his feet. You have anointed him with the best that you have and the best that you are. Is there that time in your life that the decision has been so clear to you that the gravity of that which God has said is excused fell upon you in such a way that all you wanted to do was love Jesus? See, salvation isn't about coming and telling me at the front that you want to be saved and praying a prayer. Has zero to do with it, by the way. Salvation is you understanding that you owed a penalty you couldn't pay. And it was a big penalty. So big that God crawled upon a cross and died for it. And then the gravity of that gift falls upon you in such a manner that you desire to love the one which did that for you. Has there been that time? Are you willing to look God in the eye and say, there is a time that that has happened. If not, this morning I beg of you, come to the feet of Jesus. Come to the feet of Jesus where forgiveness awaits. You ask, and he is faithful to forgive. Maybe this morning you've made that decision, but you've never made it public. I think out of obedience, you must do what that lady did. You must come Suffering the ridicule of others, not worried about what they say, but come in obedience to stand before God and say, I love you. I love you with all of my heart, and I want the world to know. Maybe this morning that's you. Maybe this morning you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've made a public profession of faith, but you do not have a tie to a local church where that gift can be used in love to others. 
that's the case this morning, you come and I'll explain to you how you can become a part of this church to share the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.